0: This is an ABC podcast. Hi ladies. Before we start, a heads up that this episode is about death and dying and might be challenging for some of you to listen to. Please take care.
1: I thought I'd have a few more years, definitely.
2: My oncologist kind of ended my appointment on Friday with a you better make holidays this year and that's a real downer but it's also a reality.
3: That's the thing about having to face your mortality, right? Geez, it kind of like really sharpens our focus on the things that are important and the things that mean stuff to us. I made pancakes and
2: I just said to them, remember when mummy did chemo? And they said, yes.
1: And I said, mummy's gonna have to do chemo again. I think it's definitely made me a lot more spontaneous and it has made me want to just say fuck it and do it, you know? The prospect of
0: dying, for those of us who are young and frisky enough to be able to do things like download podcasts and whatnot, well, it's an abstract thing. It's a concept, something we try very hard not to think about. And for those of us in our prime, having a loved one die is one of life's single most distressing events. But what if the one dying is you? I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about facing your own death. Culture doesn't have many ways to deal with death. The ceremonies we have around dying are generally based on Judeo-Christian ritual. And for those of us who aren't particularly religious, these rituals can seem very solemn, formal and irrelevant. Dying in the prime of your life isn't something that can be band-aided over with a bit of the Lord's my shepherd, and without some social scaffolding upon which to hang this scary conversation, around death, we tend to fall into silence. So how can we get better at talking about death? And what's it like to confront dying right when you're meant to be really living?
2: Can you please go get two apples
0: for me? This is a typical school morning in Claire's household, getting her five kids ready for the day. In between letting the two dogs in and out, Claire's making Vegemite sandwiches, carefully cutting them into quarters and making sure everyone has their portion of fruit. <coughs> Claire's also been dealing with strong waves of nausea and bone aching fatigue due to her latest round of cancer treatment. The chemo also makes her voice husky. Claire is now 33 years old and has spent the last four years going through the ringer. I just had my daughter.
2: She was three weeks old when I first got severe abdominal pain. I had symptoms. Till she was eight months old when I finally had a colonoscopy and endoscopy. They couldn't get
0: the, the cameras through because the tumour was so large. Claire's first diagnosis was bowel cancer. Surgery and other treatments made Claire well again. Well enough to have a surprise fifth miracle baby, another girl. But the cancer-free celebrations didn't last long.
2: When she was eight months, I got the second diagnosis, that it was back and I was now stage four.
0: Wow. So what was going through your head when the doctors told you that this is where you're at now, stage four?
2: It was a real shock. I had to call my husband in from work to come home because we had to go see the doctors now. I wanted him to hear it from the doctors. All I thought about was my kids. So how did you tell them? My oldest was 10 when we got the stage four diagnosis and my youngest was eight months. So we found out on a Friday night and on the Sunday morning I made pancakes Um, and I just said to them, remember when mummy did chemo? And I said, mummy's going to have to do chemo again. And my eldest was at the end of the table and she was very quiet and just processing it. And she said does that mean your cancer's back? And I said, yes, it does.
0: Claire's current chemo treatment is the last available to her, unless a radical trial emerges sometime soon. While Claire's talked to her girls about being unwell, she hasn't told them everything. I don't tell them it's a
2: terminal thing. I don't tell them that... I've been given a life expectancy, I don't... My oncologist kind of ended my appointment on Friday with a, you better make holidays this year, and that's a real downer.
0: But it's also a reality. Obviously you were feeling sick. Things were going on with your body and you were the one that really knew that something was awry. But at the same time, what a lot to have to get your head around to change... The forecast of your life. So tell us about that. Like, how have you readjusted your thinking?
2: I, I do allow myself to be sad, but I don't let it overcome me. You know, I've got five girls who need me and they are the ones who, you know, make me get out of bed and we just try to keep it as normal as possible.
3: I guess the first thing is to acknowledge just how bloody hard it is, right? Dr Kerry Noonan is a clinical psychologist and the
0: director of the Death Literacy Institute. Kerry's whole career has been about getting people to do death better. She says that starts with actually
3: talking about it. I think being able to have more nuanced conversations about this important topic and really be able to acknowledge those complexities and not go into the either or. It's not just a terrifying thing. It's terrifying and it can also be actually empowering and for some people quite a helpful conversation to have.
0: Yeah, helpful but also really difficult Kerry, for someone like Claire, who's the mother of five daughters, how do you have a conversation about death with
3: kids? For young children, grasping death as a permanent thing is an important part of their grief. I often say separate out the physical aspects of death with the spiritual because often our inclination is to say to kids, you know, when I die, I'm going to heaven, It's not concrete enough for a young child to kind of understand. So when I die, my body stops working. I won't have any pain anymore and my body will be buried.
0: Let's say you do have a partner and you have a terminal illness. How do you talk with them about what life will look like when you're not there anymore?
3: Part of it is you're going to do it in the way that you already talk about really tough things in your relationship. It might mean... You do it laying beside each other in bed. It may be that you do it while on a walk or cooking dinner or, you know, in some kind of other parallel way that just takes the pressure off a little bit. So you don't have to rewrite how you'd have a heavy talk
0: with your partner. You just do what you normally do when you've got to get real with each other. Kerry says avoiding hard conversations can be some people's way of
3: protecting their partners. Sometimes in couples, especially busy families, there's often a lot of protection. We sometimes call it a protection racket. She's got enough to worry about. I can't talk to her about how scared I am about the future. So I'll just suck it up and keep going. And same, the other way. So this kind of protection where everyone's protecting everyone, but actually no one's talking, that can be one of the biggest barriers. And when the stakes are so high, honesty is more important than ever. Anything that works in your relationship that's broken that down in the past, use all of those things, but also add comfort to everything.
0: You say add comfort to everything. Yeah. What does that mean?
3: What I mean by that is thinking about truly what are the things you already do as a family, as a couple, as an individual that brings you comfort and being able to connect with that and support yourself in that way can be so incredibly powerful because comfort is also that buffer to fear and being able to provide that space to be able to talk about difficult things. That can literally mean pulling
0: out the doonas, soft clothes, gentle music, snuggling in, making nourishing food, watching your favourite movies together and just holding each other.
3: We don't talk about the importance of sex and intimacy and physical intimacy at end of life. So people may not feel like having sex as such, but they may really still have that great need to touch and connect and have comfort from that touching and connecting.
0: I don't know why, but I'm having a really strong emotional reaction to you saying that.
3: You're like yeah. having a
0: cry. I think it's yeah. really tough, isn't it, when you've got tubes coming out of you and you, yeah. you know, you're sore and you've yeah. lost your hair or something. You just you, yeah. to be able to ask for for some loving and some touch. It's really meaningful.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Claire says that it's not easy for her and her husband to talk about the future.
2: He's not someone to to dwell on the negative so it's really hard to get him to open up. Mm. He's a manly man who doesn't cry. He's also a quiet man, he doesn't talk a lot. We've had moments where we will grieve together, but yeah, hes he doesn't talk about it even with mates. Thinking of the future, thinking of him having to be the the breadwinner, plus look after five girls, and he'll be absolutely out of his depth when they're teenagers. <laughs> I, I I definitely worry about the the period talk <laughs> for him because <laughs> he doesn't like he doesn't even like the word period. <laughs>
0: Are you and your husband doing anything to try and kind of lay down some building blocks of a legacy? That would probably
2: be too morbid for him Mm. to be able to go through with. It's almost overwhelming about the to-do list to do. As their mum, I'm the one who remembers what happens in their pregnancies and how it went and being girls, you know, the likelihood of them having children is very high. Um, They're all very maternal. I want to write a letter, you know, to them all individually just about how much I love them. I want to write their quotes, you know, their funny little things that, you know, their dad might not remember. But I think I'll definitely be putting their their aunties on the period talk (laughs) because I do not trust their father to do
0: it. (laughs) There's a lot that's ahead of you that sounds scary. Yeah. What, how do you manage your anxieties about what's looming? I take antidepressants. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> we focus on
2: making memories. So, my husband gets through it by just planning extravagant trips in his mind. It's we're going to go here and we're going to go there and we'll do this and we'll do that. And he's bought himself his own calendar to, to write down where we're going. And he's put Every country, <laughs> every place, we just change our focus to kind of get through those hurdles.
0: What do you want other people to get out of your story from hearing it here?
2: I suppose for for women, but you know, other mums especially, to prioritise themselves and their health. So many things caught early are curable. I think that's partly why it was eight months of symptoms for it to be, you know, diagnosed for me because when I did have that first initial pain, I should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't. All I could think is, oh, then I have to get people to look after my four young children. That's just annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just try to have a rest kind of thing.
0: Another thing that keeps Claire up at night are thoughts about the kids. A big one is, you know, my 14-month-old. Will she remember me?
2: I don't doubt that my my big girls will remember me at all. Like, I know they will. But the five, three and one-year-old is a different story of what memories they will, you know, what memories they'll hold on to.
1: I just went out with some friends one night and then the next morning I was at home just watching Friends reruns and um, started having a seizure. I want you to meet Eleanor. At the
0: time of her seizure, she was 24 years old and working as an operating theatre nurse in
1: Perth. I called an ambulance, they took me to hospital, had a head CT and they discovered I had three tumours just sitting in my brain. It was chaotic. <laughs> From there I was admitted into a hospital and went in for some brain surgery. And they took out one of them to biopsy it and see what what was going on. And within a week it had already grown back. So,
0: wow.
1: Yeah. Like, a, like a mushroom growing there so quick. Yeah. It's a high-grade tumour, which just means it's a very aggressive, uh, fast-growing tumour that attacks the soft tissues of the body. So for me, it was my brain, my bowel tissue, my soft tissues in between my muscles and now my heart. Far out. Yeah, worst place ever to have a (laughs) tumour. So Eleanor, you've had brain
0: and heart surgery. You've had radiation and chemo. Of all of that, what
1: has been the hardest on you? Chemo, absolutely. It's a slow burner. You know, you've got your straight-up side effects, which is obviously nausea, mouth thrush and, you know, tingly skin and stuff like that. But the, the mental draining is such a slow burn that you it's like almost like you don't notice it. It's like one day you're able to go out for the whole day and then eventually at the end of it you're just lying in bed not wanting to do anything. Eleanor's story is different to Claire's.
0: She doesn't have kids and doesn't grieve for the kids that could have been. But she does grieve for adventures that will never be and she's desperately sad to not see her best friend's daughter grow up and to miss out on mentoring her younger sister. Eleanor is watching like a dismayed observer while her body contends with both the cancers and the devastating chemotherapy.
1: You lose your sex drive. You lost your hair, obviously. Everything just becomes really dry, (laughs) not inviting. And then your body also, like, I've had a lot of surgeries. I'm covered in scars. Bruise super easy because I'm on blood thinners. And, yeah, the heart surgery left me with a wonky boob. So, (laughs) yeah. Oh, my God, that must be a lot. You're a 26-year-old woman. So just before my 26th birthday, uh, one of the lovely ladies at the Cannery Arts Centre down here asked me if I would be up for modelling for a, a group to come in and draw me nude. So, yeah, I did that. And... It was a couple of days before my 26, but it was such a good way to encapsulate what I looked like at 26.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to kind of just get reconnected, isn't it, with who you are? Yeah.
1: And... I felt very beautiful after the class.
0: Just before we chatted to Eleanor, she met with her oncologist to discuss another round of chemo to treat the tumour that exists in the centre of her heart. The chances of success were slim and the side effects would be brutal. So she made a huge decision.
1: Eleanor made the call to stop treatment. If this tumour had been somewhere else, I probably would have taken the chemo. This is this is always going to be in there no matter what treatment we give it. It's just going to keep coming back. So just... Do whatever I can do to be happy right now, Mm. which is, you know, to go and make memories with the people I love. Was it hard to make your family understand this decision? Uh, Surprisingly, no. My mum was with me for that last doctor's appointment. She was there when the doctors gave us the options, and one of those options included not doing anything. Can you
0: take me to that moment with your mum and dad?
1: Yeah, I'd asked them to come and sit down in the lounge room and then I just said, I'm done, I'm done, I don't want to do it anymore, I'm done.
0: Does the thought of death scare you?
1: No, I had this conversation with my mum the day that I told her and my dad my decision and she said to me, I just don't want you to be scared and I said, I don't think I'm scared of dying this way. I was more scared of dying in the way that chemo was going to make me. Dying as that person that chemo makes you. I was scared of that. Eleanor says after deciding to
0: stop treatment, she felt a sense of empowerment, that she had made the decision rather than the cancer making the decision for her.
1: I went and signed a will. made an advanced health directive. I even went to the funeral homes in Aspirans. Mm. It was really nice actually being in control of those decisions because I knew that everything that's on my mind is now all done. All the plans are made. I don't have to worry about it now. So you've made plans for what will happen to your body. Um, Yes. But Eleanor, what happens to your soul? I definitely believe in something bigger than us and I think I hope that... I get to, you know, watch on all the people that I love for a bit and then I get to go and just move on to the next part.
0: Eleanor's finding comfort in her family's culture.
1: I come from a Māori background and the way that they grieve when someone dies is quite beautiful and it makes a lot of sense to me and my mum. The body will stay in the family home for three days, two nights... And all the reflective surfaces get covered up so as to not see the spirit. Two family members will sleep in the room with the deceased. And, yeah, people will come come and go and say their goodbyes. And it's such a beautiful way to grieve in my, in my eyes. Tell us how your plans for the future have changed since your diagnosis. Everything's become a lot more urgent It's very much like, I need to go do this now. So, like, with this trip I've got planned for Europe, we booked our tickets a week ago and we literally leave tomorrow. Wow.
0: The trip to Europe is at the top of Eleanor's bucket list. Accepting the fact that she doesn't have long, her friends started a GoFundMe page for her so that she can tick off all the important wonders of the world, like drinking butterbeer at Harry Potter World and catching up with old mates to get nostalgic. It's not Judeo-Christian ritual, but it looks instead like camping in her ute in regional WA, swimming with whales in the wild and wonderful ocean and
1: taking her sister to see loud rock bands making an absolute bloody racket everything's just like okay what can i organize next that's going to be fun and i can do with the people i love and it's going to distract me for a little bit about you know what is truly going on so
0: don't snooze on the things that
1: you want exactly to do. <laughs> even though yeah. i snoozed this morning <laughs> yeah <laughs> she was late listeners. she was late
0: <laughs> Great, that was really perfect. Thank you so much, Eleanor. No worries. Please have the best holiday. I will. Adventure.
1: Yeah. Um, I've got some packing to do today. You do. <laughs> it's the list making before you go on a big trip is just... I went to New Zealand once and I, I packed before going to a Christmas work party and then I was like, I'll finish it when I get home. I didn't. I was so smashed. And then I got all the way to New Zealand. <laughs> it was Christmas Eve. I opened my bag and I'd forgot to pack any shirts, so... Yeah, I'll make sure I don't do it this time.
0: (laughs) If this episode has raised issues for you or inspired you to find out more about how you can help Claire and Eleanor and other women facing down cancer, we've popped a list of organisations and resources in the show notes. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungara, Bidjigal and Gadigal peoples. Ladies, We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de It's produced by Tamar Kranswick. Supervising producer is Alex Lolback And our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan.